Welcome to episode 90 of Goodwill Hunters from the Development Policy Centre. I'm your host, Rachel Mason-Nunn. Today on the show, I speak to Fiona Herkula, Miranda Forsyth, and Philip Gibbs. If you haven't heard of this problem, you might wonder why I'm covering it. But as two of our speakers today have written, there are a wide and likely growing range of abuses arising from beliefs in sorcery and witchcraft around the world. This is particularly a problem in parts of Africa and India, but it is also a growing problem in Papua New Guinea, where we see extreme levels of violence against those accused of using witchcraft and relative impunity of those perpetrating the violence. Our speakers today are on the front line of the battle against sorcery accusation-related violence, or SARV, in Papua New Guinea. Dr. Fiona Hakula is a Senior Research Fellow at the Papua New Guinea National Research Institute. Fiona represents the PNG NRI on high-level national committees such as the Family and Sexual Violence Action Committee and the National Action Plan Against Sorcery Accusation-Related Violence. Dr. Miranda Forsyth is an Associate Professor in the College of Asia and the Pacific at ANU. Miranda is a Chief Investigator in a major four-year project investigating how to best overcome sorcery accusations and related violence in PNG. Lastly, Dr. Philip Gibbs is a Divine Word missionary priest serving in Papua New Guinea since 1973. Currently, he is Vice President, Research and Higher Degrees at Divine Word University, Madang, Papua New Guinea. He is well known for his research and advocacy against sorcery-related violence in PNG. In the episode, we unpack the extent of SARV in PNG and the factors that are causing a spike of SARV-related incidents. We then delve into their extensive research on SARV, which will inform the upcoming PNG Sorcery National Action Plan. The topic of sorcery is a contentious one in PNG, and as this episode demonstrates, sorcery-related violence is not limited to those with low education levels or only those in remote areas. Rather, it is a problem which endures for people of all ages, genders, locations and education levels in PNG, and one which may be worsened with the spike in COVID-19 cases. This is an important and at times heavy conversation and one which will resonate for many of us who have lived or worked in Papua New Guinea. Fiona, Miranda and Philip have written extensively on the subject of sorcery accusation related violence on the Dev Policy blog. You can find relevant links to their articles and other materials in the show notes. Enjoy the episode. Fiona, Miranda, Philip, thank you for speaking with me. Fiona, we'll start with you. Parts of Papua New Guinea continue to be afflicted with violence related to Sanguma, which is a belief in black magic and sorcery. How widespread is sorcery accusation related violence or SARV? And where in PNG is it occurring the most? So um, in terms of um, how widespread, I think What I'd like to say is that the belief is widespread and where we're working in in four provinces, well, in Aenga, Bougainville, Port Moresby and Juwaka, we do see that accusations in some places are quite widespread. But in terms of PNG as a whole, we don't have enough data to, to, to say whether, you know, it's widespread in terms of accusations. But I can say that um, I would say that the belief in sorcery um, is, is widespread in PNG. So, for example, with our research, which has been collected over three main places for three years, uh, we found that in Inga, for example, we've had um, 
250. Yeah, that's that's right. So we've we've collected um, data in three different provinces and um, systematically over three years. And during that time, we've recorded 1,239 individuals who have been accused of sorcery. And out of those, that's led to violence uh, in 39% of cases. Can I clarify, when you say the belief is widespread, but the violence itself is not necessarily widespread, what do you mean by that? So what I mean, what I mean is that generally I would say that many people in Papua New Guinea believe in sorcery um, or believe that illness or bad for- misfortune is caused by something that is supernatural so that, that's what I mean by the belief in sorcery is quite widespread. Philip, I'll ask you now, who are the primary victims of SARV and why are they specifically targeted? Well, it's, very, it's very difficult to uh, identify a particular uh, category of people. Um, many people think that it's old ladies and that they're the ones that you see in the um, uh, Facebook and, and, and so on. But in fact, from our research, we found that it's, in fact, uh, from the areas that we've been doing research, which is really only three provinces in Papua New Guinea, and Papua New Guinea's got 20 provinces, uh, we found that there's more men accused than women. For instance, we found uh, of that group of 1,200 um, uh, cases, uh, we found that 691 were men. And when you look at it, for instance, by age, uh, we found that uh, it's it's across all age groups, but the the age group that was most frequent was between 41 and 60 years old. Yeah? But we found that, for instance, in that number, we've got 16 children who have been accused. And children are from uh, the children category would be from 0 to 10. Uh, young people, 11 to 18, there's been 35. You know, it's not as, as clear as uh, one might uh, think. When it comes to, um, for instance, um, education, the, the, the greatest majority had no formal education, the people who have been accused. But there have been 38 who have completed tertiary education, yeah, who have been accused. Their economic status, well, we found that um, the majority are the same economic status as others in the community. So they're not this poor person or this particularly rich person, but they're of the same status as other people. Did they have um, paid employment? No. The majority do not have paid employment, but there are 89 who did have paid employment uh, out of that number. You can see it's quite varied, really, and that's what our research has been uncovering. Would it be reasonable to say there is at least some correlation between perpetrators of SARV and low education levels? Well, according to our um, figures, it's the um, the ones who are... Um, no school would be 300, had primary school 260, completed primary school 270, completed secondary school 200. You see, it's pretty widely spaced. You can't really identify any one particular group. Who completed tertiary, there's only 38. So we could say that, uh, but in Papua New Guinea, there's not many people who have completed tertiary. So if you're looking at it at a percentage of the population, I don't think we've got any particular group that uh, you can point to. You did make a point at the start there that I want to pick up on before we move on. You said it's the old ladies that we see on Facebook that we associate with SARV. And of course, social media is playing a role in how SARV is reported. But can you elaborate on what you meant by that? Well, 
I've seen reference to people who are accused and tortured in the, in the, in the pictures that one sees. You don't see pictures of young people being tortured. You see pictures of, it's usually mature women, uh, sometimes older women. They're, they're stripped, they're hung up, they're tortured, they're burned, and, you, and, and that's what you see in the media. Um, and that's what I was trying to counter. Um, it is true that they are, they are tortured and, and, um, and um, it does happen, but they're not necessarily representative of everyone who was accused of, of uh, sorcery, no. And particularly worrying is the children. For instance, there was a case last week of a nine-year-old child being accused along with, um, with adults, three adults, and a nine-year-old child in Enger. Um, and that's very disturbing. And just jumping in with regard to the children as well is that often children are secondary victims because they are, um, you know, their mother or their father are accused, but then they also become a, a person who is being stigmatised. Other children don't want to sit near them or else the family is forced out from where they are, so they then sort of start to become refugees in their own country. In in recent months, the issue of gender-based violence has received quite a lot of press in Papua New Guinea and internationally because of some particularly noteworthy cases. Fiona, how does the issue of SAV compare to gender-based violence in PNG? Well, I think in terms of um, violence against women, as um, was mentioned previously, the data we have collected so far shows that in the provinces that we're working, it shows that SAV is a big problem. But I think the more general problem of violence against women is much larger. And we also have to remember that with SAV, and our data shows this, it, it affects men as well. So as we were saying earlier, we have found that more men have been accused. And just going back to what Miranda said, it's intergenerational and has a detrimental effect on families and communities. So it is also important to to make sure that when we're talking about gender-based violence that we do include um, sorcery accusation related violence because we do know that in places like Enga where we work the majority of uh, people being accused are women and so it is a form of gender-based violence but um, again we have to be mindful that sorcery accusation related violence is a, is a form of violence that affects everybody across regardless of gender. It's it's very interesting that it would appear that for both SAV and gender-based violence, education levels doesn't appear to be a determinant of either. Would you say the same for healthcare? Is access to healthcare a determinant of the likelihood of SAV? I might jump in there to say that, you know, the vast majority of incidents of SAV are in fact triggered by illness or by death. Uh, so there might have been underlying suspicions and concerns, but it's really that, you know, as somebody gets sick, often it's a, a child, often it's an unexpected kind of a, of a death. So, for example, cases of uh, heart disease where a sort of seemingly healthy 50-year-old man is suddenly um, struck down, those are the types of cases that give rise to um, questions of, well, who has caused this? So for that reason, uh, poor health care is a really significant factor in, in this type of violence. And what about alcohol and drugs? Is increasing consumption of alcohol and drugs also making SARV more prevalent? 
So um, as we noted, it's really hard to give a an uh, a clear answer in terms of trends. So we can't really say, oh, this is what it was like 20 years ago and this is what it is like today. However, in the research, we asked the question whether or not the um, perpetrators, some of them, are affected by drugs or alcohol. And we found that that was a case in 59% of the cases recorded. But in 40% of the cases, none of the perpetrators were said to be affected by drugs or alcohol. So it's not just this kind of, you know, um, alcohol or drug-fueled crowd um, type of violence that is always the situation. We also pointed out the fact that these, the way in which these type of cases occurs or plays out really varies enormously throughout Papua New Guinea. And there are definitely pockets where it is very much associated with people they call them drug bodies, these young, these youth who are um, smoking a lot of marijuana and they are notoriously associated with this kind of violence. But that is certainly not the case everywhere. Um, and I just wanted to, to go back to that question of, um, of education. So you had asked whether or not poor education levels also play a role. And there's no doubt that in terms of a lack of a critical appraisal of what are the causes of sickness and death, then that um, lack of education or poor education uh, plays a big role. However, we've also found that people with good levels of education are involved in these cases. So some of the educated elite in cities, for example, are in fact the ones who instigate these types of attacks back in their um, home village communities, and that's often for ulterior motives to, um, to get access to land or, um, or, or such like. So, again, we find it very hard to, um, to definitively say poor education equates to these types of accusations. It's obviously a very complex issue when healthcare and education alone uh, are not enough and, and when it is so deeply embedded in aspects of culture. You're all part of a major study into SARV in PNG, which is funded by the Papua New Guinea-Australia Partnership and will inform PNG's Sorcery National Action Plan. Before I ask you about the priority areas of research, can I first ask whether this is the first time PNG has had a national action plan for sorcery? Yes, it is the first sorcery accusation-related violence national action plan. The, the plan has come about after much protest in, I think it was 2013, after the death of uh, Kepari Leniata, and then there was um, also a sorcery accusation-related violence incident in Bougainville um, and there was a lot of protests. There was the house crime movement, things like that that happened within country and also outside of PNG and, and the government responded by um, tasking the Constitutional and Law Reform Commission to review the Sorcery Act. It was subsequently uh, repealed and the work of putting together this uh, national action plan sort of went along with that. Um, Miranda can probably say more. Okay, so I just wanted to clarify that, in fact, the national action plan was passed by the government in 2015. So it, it's been set up uh, and there is a committee that oversees the implementation of that uh, action plan and that is the committee that our research feeds into. 
and Fiona is the um, the head of the the research on that committee. And, and Rachel, I just also wanted to add that really the that that case in 2013 because it sort of went worldwide. I was in the UK at the time in Scotland and I saw the news there. That was really, I think, the push to get um, some action from government on sorcery accusations and, and related violence. But I, I, um, maybe Father Phil can say more on this, but I think that this is something that's been going on, obviously, for a very long time in some parts of PNG without much, much attention. And now with social media, you know, it's been able to be kept in that sort of media limelight. And, and then the, the mainstream media seems to be taking um, note of of the kinds of violence that's happening in terms of South. Yeah, so I just wanted to add that. Yeah, if I could just add, um, we're not sure if it's been increasing, but it certainly is expanding. And so it's expanding into places where it didn't really exist before or it wasn't recognised before. Take a province like the Enga province in the middle of the highlands. Um, they, they never spoke about um, that sort of thing, witchcraft or, or sorcery. Um, and they identify it now as something new. Uh, they call it the new sick or the new um, um, something or other. Um, and, and it's that expansion which I think has helped cause um, a, a greater concern uh, in recent times. It was almost endemic in some places and people had, had um, found ways to deal with it, but not with the same violence that is being uh, shown today. There's definitely been a an expansion and a development of that. Do you have theories about why Saab has expanded into new areas like Anger where it didn't exist before? Well, uh, we have roads now and people are moving a lot. Um, we have um, uh, people intermarrying in, uh, in other parts of the country with their different beliefs. Um, things are rather different in the country, uh, and I should note this, we were saying before how um, anyone is uh, possibly going to be accused, but it depends on culture. Uh, for example, in a place like Bougainville, over 80% of those, almost 90%, I believe, are male, whereas in Enga, uh, over 90% are female. So it's not that in any particular part you've got just as much chance of being accused. Uh, it depends a lot on cultural factors, and culture is changing today. Okay, Miranda, we'll go to you now. What are the focus areas of your research? Well, we've been really trying to understand what is the nature of sorcery accusation-related violence, you know, what is the extent of it, who are the victims, these kind of things that we've already discussed because there hasn't been a, a baseline that we can really um, go from. So to get a, a, a handle on, well, what actually is happening at the moment and then we've been really interested in what sort of things constrain it in terms of, you know, what, what regulatory responses appear to be effective at uh, either stopping accusations from happening or stopping violence from occurring or then responding to violence and accusations. Uh, one way that we have really sought to understand how it spreads through communities in the way that it's spread through ENGA, for example, is to think of it a little bit like a disease. And um, that's obviously very topical at the moment with regard to um, coronavirus. But we've used this idea of contagion. And we talk about four different aspects of it. 
So first of all, there are these very particular narratives about sorcery that vary from place to place and that might be introduced into a particular area as well. So, for example, in in Enga, it is very much um, said that, you know, women eat the hearts of, um, of their victims and there's a lot of discussion about that and that's where the, the word tanguma is often used. Whereas, as... Um, Philip said in Voganville, people talk about the poisoning. They talk about the idea that if you cast away your um, betel nut, uh, for example, then somebody will come and will take it and will we'll use that to create a kind of a poison that will then make people sick. Uh, second, then, oh, and with regard to those narratives that are spread, then they are also accompanied by a behavioural script about how do you respond to this what is an appropriate thing for a community to do? And it is that violence behavioural script that is the problem, that if there is somebody who you suspect is a sanguma, for example, then the appropriate response is to use violence, to engage in um, torture, for example. Then we've looked at the, the ways in which populations become susceptible to those kind of narratives, and we see that the, the worldview in which magic does have um, does exercise causation is is very important and um, other factors such as you know underlying poverty famine uh, poor health these also increase that susceptibility of the population then we've looked at the mechanisms of transmission of these narratives and behavioral scripts and as father Gibbs said you know that can involve the fact that well, now there are roads. So people are travelling, people are telling stories about what they've seen happening in other places and how people should respond. And also these are often very um, public events. So they are events that will take place in the middle of the village. Everybody will see what is occurring. And that in and of itself is a way of sensitising the rest of the population to that form of violence and, and a way of teaching that this is the way that, you know, you respond. And also, as we touched on earlier, there's the, the role of social media, Facebook, in terms of spreading these narratives as well. And we've also looked at, you know, who are the people who are spreading these kind of narratives and identified diviners, um, sometimes called glassmen. They, for example, will go to funerals and will say to people, oh, if you pay us a certain amount of money, then we can tell you, you know, who is the person who has um, caused this death. And also in some circumstances, faith healers have, um, have been also problematic in, in spreading these kind of narratives. Maybe I could add a few points uh, because with the contagion, where well, you've got these scripts uh, that people follow, we've also been looking at the counter-narratives uh, that people will um, raise in order to um, to deal with that narrative of someone who's said to be eating a heart of someone. By the way, it doesn't have to be the heart of someone. They can eat the heart of a car as well. Um, so it gets quite complex, you know. But, for instance, counter-narratives such as um, uh, you say you're a Christian, uh, violence is against the law, uh, she could be your sister, uh, it's not part of our culture. Um, these sorts of um, counter-narratives and who is uh, able to... Um, uh, spread such counter-narratives uh, to counter the, the other narratives, the, the destructive narratives that are being spread. 
And we found that it has to be someone who's a real community insider. It's, it's no good if someone from outside uh, trying to um, introduce a counter-narrative like that. It's only effective, really, when it comes from a, uh, an insider. And so, um, you know, that's the sorts of things that we've been trying to look at both sides of it. Um, and it's really quite complex. I, I had a phone call from someone this morning. Um, she's a woman who was accused a number of years ago, and we thought that we got her back into the community. And she called me on Saturday night and said, they've just burned my house down. And, um, and so here she is. She's homeless now. They, they had they'd gone in with the police and the army and told the people that, you know, if you people touch this woman again, you're going to be in trouble. But some anonymous person has just burned her house down. And so she's saying, where do I go now? Um, it's really so difficult on the ground. That's it's obviously a, a very distressing story to hear. In your research, you have found that it's members of a local community that are more likely to intervene in incidents of SARV than the police or law enforcement officials. And as you said earlier, Miranda, often this violence is happening in a very public place. So there is scope for local community members to intervene. Why do you think it is that the local community and not the police are intervening in SARV? Firstly, we found that... um in terms of intervention, um, in 78% of cases, um, attempts were made to stop the violence. Um, in, in response to your question, um, why is it that it's um, community members? Well, I think, firstly, for very practical reasons, a lot of these cases occur in quite remote areas. So... Police are not everywhere. There's only 7,000 police in this country. Um, and so we found that it's the village leaders or elders in um, over half, 66% of the time, it's village leaders or elders who have tried to intervene or an immediate family member. Also because um, sometimes police, are, like I said, they're too far away, so it's difficult for them to attend or convince them to attend. There's, we've done a number of interviews with police um, in, in, in the provinces. They've got logistical constraints, things like, um, you know, you want, for example, that the case that happened last week in Hanger, police don't have fuel. Um, they were overpowered in terms of firearms. Um, so there's some real concerns about policing SAV in some of our um, in some of the areas that we work in, and also in, for example, in Bougainville, they have a, the police are not armed, so that's an additional challenge for them. Well, um, it's also the people are starting. Some people are starting to um, actively oppose the police. It makes it very difficult. Yeah. Last last weekend uh, in Enga, uh, the local police went in to try and rescue. Uh, a group of women who were being tortured, and the people opposed them with firearms, and they were yep. outnumbered. They were they were outgunned, and so what they had to resort to was the paramilitary group of police, um, uh, which uh, and and also several members of the um, armed forces had to go in there. And it was only when you got a group as big as that and as well armed as that that they could go and rescue two of the women. They still haven't got two of the others, and the child. So um, you've got this active. Um, opposition from some of the communities who are armed. And uh, the police, uh, you know, they, they might go into an area and then the people will take out the bridges 
cut the trees across the road, there's no way the police are going to be able to get out. And then they're opposed by people who are more armed than themselves. It presents a very, very difficult situation. Yes, that does raise the point of gun violence. And I think often there's a misconception that SARV doesn't involve guns when, in fact, increasingly it does. Is that correct? Yeah, our data hasn't shown a really strong correlation between uh, guns and SARV. In some places, there have been more of those execution-style killings. Um, In Bougainville, I think we've documented some of those. Uh, But often it is, in fact, a much more protracted type of of violence involving, you know, the heating of hot irons and and this kind of public display uh, that, that doesn't involve firearms. But, of course, as you point out, Firearms are used as a way of keeping the police out, and that does become really significant. Just yeah. also I wanted to pick up on that issue of the, the insiders, and we've noted that the insiders are really important, but it's also important that they are connected to outside networks. So that's what the, the times when we really see that there can be um, movement is when you have insiders connected to outsiders connected to police or to the um, military or to village court magistrates. So it's that combination of the state and the non-state being able to work together that really enables uh, those type of rescues to occur. And also one of the, the biggest problems is what happens to those people who have been accused and who have been run out of their village. How do you bring them back? Again, the the cases that we've documented that have done that successfully have involved a combination of local leaders working together with state representatives like the police and um, village court magistrates and a kind of a, a ceremony and a warning as well that the police are here, they've got the back of the person who's been accused. Let's pick up on the role of the village court magistrates. In 2013, the PNG government repealed the 1971 Sorcery Act, which ended sorcery from being a plausible defence in murder cases. And the government has also expanded its use of the death penalty in murder-related cases. However, cases of SARV have continued to rise, which would indicate that those legal reforms haven't deterred perpetrators of SARV what else is needed to discourage SARV and what should the role of the village court magistrates be? So I think that the village court um, plays an extremely important role, um, not only in discouraging SARV, but just generally in addressing issues in our villages. Um, so in terms of the repeal of the Act and, you know, the case is still continuing to rise, that's a. This is a great example of um, the disconnect, really, between what happens at the national level and at, in our communities. Um, we found through our research that there's still a lot of confusion around the repeal of that act, um, not just at the village level, but within law enforcement itself. So there's then there needs to be those clear messages around the repeal of the act and also around trying to make sure that communities are aware that any kind of accusation or any kind of violence that 
happens because of an accusation is criminal. And then we also need that enforcement. But as we've mentioned, that in itself is a huge problem if police are getting um, now sort of communities themselves are arming themselves and not allowing police to go in and, and rescue women and also pursue charges against those who are committing these kinds of violence against men or women um, in communities. If I could just say something, uh, the government did introduce the death penalty for for people who commit murder on the um, premise that they're murdering sorcerers. But um, there's no um, proof that that is going to have any influence. Um, the only way that it's going to work is if there's effective um, um, prosecution. And we see very little of that. If people know that they're going to get caught and they're going to get prosecuted, that could be a deterrent. But just the fact of having a death penalty is not going to necessarily make much difference. There was one landmark case here in Madang where um, there were uh, almost 100 people apprehended and, and taken to court. And um, a number, I think it was about eight, were given the death penalty. Um, and uh, many of the others were given life imprisonment. Over 80 people were given life imprisonment. And we, we've yet to see uh, what difference that makes. We've been making inquiries, but there's no conclusion, no conclusive evidence yet that even that that is, um, is having much of an influence to the sorts of uh, sorcery violence that we're, sorcery accusation-related violence that we're seeing here around Madang. So uh, again, as I, I say, it's, it's rather complicated. I've said that a few times this morning. And that, that's really one of the problems that we're finding that the, uh, the court will hand down a decision and yet that the knowledge about that is very, very uh, limited in terms of uh, who actually becomes aware of that. Uh, people will often say, oh, there needs to be more prosecutions or there haven't been any prosecutions. And when we look, we see, you know, there are actually a regular number of, of these cases that go through the courts. There's eight to ten a year with really significant uh, penalties that are being imposed. And yet the general public, if you ask them, have there been any of these cases prosecuted, people would say no. So that's one other finding that, that is a really strong one, which is that there needs to be a lot more communication to the public about what the courts are, um, are deciding. Of course, the work of faith-based groups is also a, an important part of the response to SARV. Philip, many workers and groups who assist the victims of SARV are Christians. How does someone of faith navigate the complexities of educating communities that their beliefs are simply superstitions? How does that work in practice? Well, uh, we certainly work with the leaders in the communities, but um, there's different approaches by the churches. For instance, if, if you just tell people that this is superstition, it's just a whole bunch of lies, um, you're, um, you people are confused, um, that's really proposing a, a scientific point of view. Yeah, from a scientific point of view, uh, you appear to be confused. Um, and many people will not accept that. Uh, I think people who uh, identify as Christians will uh, probably say, yes, evil exists. And um, so in what ways does it exist? It depends to some extent on your worldview. Um, some Christians, I think, can combine 
a religious worldview with a scientific worldview. They can combine the two and work with that. But many people, uh, it's going to affect the way they have causal explanations. Why does something happen? You know, someone died. Uh, why? Um, someone died of cancer. Uh, okay, they died of cancer. So you have the doctor telling you that they died of cancer. But then the next question is, why did that person die of cancer? Why did that person get cancer? Someone will come in with a more of a religious uh, causal uh, question than just simply the scientific question. So it seems to me there's three basic groups. There's the ones who um, say, yes, evil exists, but my Christian faith protects me from being affected by it. Um, and that's taking sort of a psycho-spiritual um, approach. And uh, that would be an approach that I would take very often and uh, many people in the uh, so-called mainline churches. Um, and that um, belief that you're protected uh, acts as a shield to what is actually evil. But then there would be others who would say that it lies in unjust social and cultural situations, um, that um, people are victims of um, social tensions um, and um, things like that. And we would call that social sin. And that's where they talk about social sin. And um, we found with the research that often there are pre-existing tensions and conflicts in the community. We've asked about that. And that has a, a bearing on it. Um, and one of the things that we've been looking at is the link between that belief and the violence. Why does it have to be violent, the response? But then another way of looking at it, the third way, is to look at evil personified. Uh, some people, faith-based uh, people of faith, will counter that with other forms of spiritual power. Like, you, for instance, you'll find a Catholic community um, thinking about sacraments, holy water, wearing a cross, um, uh, things like that. You have other others in the Protestant groups um, putting a lot of faith on having the Bible, a cross. Um, but then you've got other groups, particularly the um, the more charismatic or Pentecostal groups who will um, uh, engage in deliverance ministries. And that's really um, doesn't help very much at all, I think, because it's, it's affirming the ontological reality of that evil. Um, and uh, I, I think that it's often only making it worse. Um, it's just um, helping to spread the um, belief in these um, evil spirits through uh, deliverance ministries and so on. Sometimes that belief can help. For example, in a Catholic community, if they get engaged, the bishop in, in Enger, he excommunicates them. In other words, the people are out and they can't receive communion, they can't participate in the sacraments, and that matters to people. So he's using a religious explanation of, of excommunication that makes a difference that will uh, make people think and, and make people, they, they have to go through a whole process of um, uh, awareness and um, penance and all sorts of things before they'd be accepted back again. So um, that's an area where I think that, uh, particularly in the Inga with the bishop there, that has made a big difference um, to the Catholic communities. Okay, to finish, in the last 24 hours, we have seen an increase in the number of COVID-19 cases in Papua New Guinea. And even prior to seeing that increase, there has been a lot of mixed reporting and misunderstanding around COVID. 
Coming back to a point that you made earlier, it's often an illness or a death that will spark SARV. Given the increase of COVID-19 cases, are you also expecting an increase in SARV? And are we already seeing any evidence to suggest that might be the case? Personally, uh, I don't know if the others disagree with me. Personally, I don't see any correlation, partly because it's only really become a real issue in Papua New Guinea in the last week or two weeks. Up until that time, we had eight people, no one had died, no one had got sick. They send the expatriates off back to their countries and and then we can uh, say that Papua New Guineans are protected either physically or by God. Um, But uh, in the last week, things have started to get serious. And so it'll take time for us to see that. But when I asked uh, my recorders um, two weeks ago uh, in the Anger province, they said, it might help. There's all this... um, Awareness that's going on with uh, COVID-19, it's uh, making people more aware of the medical causes of of, uh, sickness and death. And maybe that'll help um, uh, distract people from uh, coming up with a religious, you know, sorcery salve type of explanation. Maybe it'll be uh, a help to our awareness. That was their response. That was their their spontaneous response. Whether that will be true or not, I don't know. Um, I'm sure Miranda's probably got some other ideas because there are ideas coming in from other parts of the world as well. Yeah, so we've been um, discussing this in the international context. We're part of a network of uh, people who look at these issues across the world as they play out in different countries. And there is a real concern that there is going to be an increase in ritual attacks, in um, sacrifices and in... uh, SARV type of cases uh, throughout the world as a result of COVID. Uh, we don't know how it's going to play out in Papua New Guinea. We, we can only make some hypotheses. One hypothesis comes from the fact that during the HIV AIDS uh, epidemic, then there were also correlating increases in sorcery accusation related violence cases. So that seems to suggest that there would be um, possibly people turning to uh, those narratives as a way of explaining why these illnesses are affecting uh, different individuals. One other thing about uh, the way in which COVID plays out is it seems uh, that it's quite hard to explain why some people seem to get it so badly and others don't as well, don't don't get it um, badly at all. And so that's something that also makes me slightly concerned that it might be able to... um, Sorcery narratives might feed into explaining that difference. Um, Then also in terms of indirect uh, impacts, if you have got a health system that is overwhelmed by uh, cases of COVID, then that means that they're not going to be able to be attending to these other um, health problems. And so, again, that is likely to increase the the number of accusations that, that come. Um, but at the same time, as um, as Philip has pointed out, maybe because there is so much awareness that this isn't just something that's happening in, in PNG, it's happening everywhere, and there's a lot of discussion about these mechanisms of transmission of COVID, that it will increase the, um, the literacy of communities in terms of germs and um, health and so cause a reflection on, on whether or not those accusations are um, are in fact really justified. 
Hopefully we're not going to find that out. Well, I think just in relation to your last question, I, I agree with um, Philip that at the moment we can't tell. Uh, the increase in cases with Saab has mainly been here in Port Moresby. Um, so, sorry, not with Saab. The increases in cases with coronavirus has mainly been here in Port Moresby. Um, in relation to sorcery accusation related violence, I hope that we'll have to wait and see whether there's any correlation. But I think really given the, the research that we've done and given sort of the ongoing advocacy that, that we do around our work, we know that this is a problem. Um, it's not a problem in terms of everywhere because, you know, the, the belief is widespread with different ways of dealing with sorcery. But in the provinces that we work in and that we know that there's a problem, there really needs to be um, a concerted effort to deal with sorcery accusation-related violence. Um, otherwise, we, we are going to see um, some of the different changes or the, the actions that Father Gibbs talked about. Because um, I know that in places like Milne Bay where there's widespread, that the, the belief is there. I was told last week or the week before that that two women were killed. Those are the kinds of things that we need to be concerned about, that things that are happening in other places, um, the violence especially is now being transported to places where there's usually no violence, but the belief is there. It's fascinating insights. Thank you all so much for your time. That was episode 90 of Goodwill Hunters from the Development Policy Centre. I'm your host, Rachel Mason-Nunn, and I'll see you next week.